Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's episode, Progress in Programming as Evolution. So evolution via natural selection is a really good explanation for how we gradually got successively more complex biological organisms. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, there's long been efforts to apply the same general mechanism to the development of ever more complex technologies. One domain where this has been studied a bit is in computer programming. So let's take a look at this literature to see how well the framework of biological evolution maps to sort of one form of technological progress. So we'll start with a 2006 paper by W. Brian Arthur and Wolfgang Polak, who look at how ever more sophisticated logic circuits can, in principle, evolve via a blind process of mutation, selection, and recombination. The paper reports the results of a large number of digital simulations that do precisely that. And so these simulations have three main components. First, if you're going to simulate evolution, you need your organism, or in this case, your technology. Arthur and Pollack start with a very elementary logic gate. In most simulations, they use a not and gate. That's a circuit with two binary inputs and one binary output. If every input is one, then it spits out zero. Otherwise, it spits out one. Now, from this seed, much more sophisticated circuits are going to gradually and digitally evolve. So the second thing you need in order to simulate evolution is a way to modify the organism or the technology. And we might think the natural way to do this is to just allow for slight mutations in these circuits, little tweaks here or there, which is how we often think of biological evolution, you know, single gene pairs being switched from A to G or something. But Arthur and Polak believe recombination is the essence of technological change rather than mutation. So their model of digital evolution is much more explicitly combinatorial. In every period, sets of 2 through 12 technologies are picked, and then they randomly get wired together in a sequence, although any individual circuit is also allowed to mutate a bit just on its own. Third, to model evolution, you need a way to evaluate the fitness of your organisms or your circuits in this case. If we're trying to understand technological evolution, then fitness should be related to whether or not humans are going to find these technologies to be useful. Arthur and Pollack come up with a list of desired functions that it's reasonable for people to want circuits to be able to fulfill. These range from very simple to very complex. For example, one simple function is just a not gate. That's a gate that returns the opposite of its input. Uh, if it gets a 1, it shoots out a 0. If it gets a 0, it shoots out a 1. A more complex function is a 15-bit adder. If you put in two 15-bit numbers, well, the circuit outputs their sum. Arthur and Pollock next come up with a way to score circuits based on how close they get to giving the right answer. Every time the circuit gives the right answer for some set of inputs, it scores better. Every time it gives the wrong answer, it scores worse. And if two circuits perform equally well, the one that does it with fewer components gets a better score. In every period, the highest scoring circuits and their components get retained. In next period, the simulation draws components from this basket of retained circuits, and then it wires them together to see if any of the resulting combinations can do a better job fulfilling the desired tasks. Finally, Arthur and Pollack let this system run for 250,000 periods. They do this 20 different times, and then they watch what happens. And we learn a few things from the results of this exercise. First, the experiment is just an existence proof that you don't need inventors with reasoning minds to get sophisticated technologies. This blind recombinant evolution can also do that job. In 250,000 periods, these simulations don't discover everything that Arthur and Pollack define as desirable, but they do go well beyond the simplest circuits. 
For example, the simulation successfully discovered circuits that can add four-bit numbers, and circuits that can indicate if one, and only one, of, say, eight inputs is the number one. Second, in the experiment, technological advance tends to be lumpy. Desirable circuits tend to be discovered in clusters after key component pieces are discovered, which unlock lots of new functionality. But in between these evolutionary sprints can be long periods of technological stagnation, even though under the surface sort of the ferment of experimentation and R&D, as we might call it, is going on invisible to us. Third, their simulations give this nuanced picture about the importance of path dependency. Now, path dependency is this idea that where our technologies start has a big impact on where they finish up. If we start along one technological trajectory, we're more likely to continue on it and end up with a sort of completely different basket of technologies than if we had started on a different trajectory. In Arthur and Pollack's experiments, one way they can investigate this is to see how different simulations evolve when different circuits are discovered first. For example, most of the time, a not circuit is found before an imply circuit, but not always. In the rarer cases when the imply circuits are found first, well then many subsequent technologies build on the imply circuit than on the not circuit. But over time, the program still manages to sniff out the best overall approaches for different functions, and this sort of does begin to chip away at this initially atypical dominance of these imply components. So that means that the importance of where you start matters for a time, but not forever. It begins to fade. Fourth, technological innovation, like biological innovation, is red in tooth and claw. Better technologies are constantly supplanting obsolete ones, and sometimes this leads to these waves of extinction. For example, suppose some technology X is comprised of 12 other circuits, and each of these component circuits is further comprised of something between two and 12 subcomponents, and those subcomponents are in turn comprised of sub-subcomponents and so on. If technology X is replaced by a superior technology Y, well then technology X sort of goes extinct in this model. And if the components and subcomponents and sub-subcomponents that comprised X are not also part of some other technology that's doing a great job and is best in its class, well, then we don't need them either, and they also go extinct. And so they find that this can lead to these collapses of entire ecosystems of supportive circuits. Lastly, Arthur and Pollack's digital experiment illustrates the importance of intermediate goals in the evolution of technological complexity. In their simulations, if Arthur and Pollack remove key desirable circuits of intermediate complexity, then the simulations get trapped and unable to advance to more complex designs. The intuition is that evolution needs stepping stones to get from simple to complex. So this is an intriguing experiment, but it doesn't demonstrate that these mechanisms are important in the actual development of technology. For that, I'm a big fan of two papers from 2018 and 2020 by Elena Mew, Ned Gulley, Kevin Laland, and Luke Rendell. These papers study 19 online programming competitions operated by MathWorks over 1998 to 2012. So this is still an artificial setting, but we now have real people solving real programming problems. And as we'll see, these contests have some important elements that make them worth studying. So in these contests, nearly 2,000 participants, which is an average of 136 participants for each of the 19 contests, these participants competed over the course of a week to write programs in MATLAB that could find the best solution to a problem in which it is impossible to find an exact solution in the time given. For example, in a 2007 contest, participants wrote code to play a kind of peg-jumping game, 
where there's this, you can imagine there's this grid of pegs and they all have different points associated with them. And there's one empty space and you can remove a peg by jumping over one peg and onto an empty space. A program's score was based on three factors, the number of points it got in the game, how fast it ran, and how complex the code is. And the more complex uh, code gets penalized. Participants could submit their programs at any time, and then they receive a score for MathWorks. They could then modify their code in response to the score they received, and this sort of iterative improvement was an important part of the contest. But there's a catch. Programs and their scores were publicly viewable by all participants. So submitting a program and getting feedback on its performance also discloses your program to all the other contest participants, and they're free to borrow or steal your best ideas. So this is a great setting to study technological evolution for a few reasons. As in the real world, there's robust competition and inventions can be reverse engineered and copied. Unlike Arthur and Polak, in this setting, we have reasoning minds designing and improving programs rather than just sort of blind processes of recombination and selection. But perhaps most importantly for the purposes of studying technological evolution, we can see the complete genotype of computer programs by reading their code. And then if you use standard text analysis packages, Mu and co-authors can see exactly which lines and blocks of code are copied and how similar programs are to each other. And lastly, because programs are explicitly scored and players care about these scores, they're actively seeking the highest ones, Mu and co-authors also know exactly how good a program is. So when Mu and co-authors peer into the underlying dynamics in their 2018 paper, they see that the most common type of program that is submitted is a program that's very similar to the current leader, but with a few minor tweaks. And then in their 2020 follow-up paper, they also document that when two programs have the same score, people are more likely to copy the one that's submitted by the person, by the participant, who tends to score higher in their other submitted programs, even if those are in other completely different MATLAB contests. In other words, these papers find a classic evolutionary dynamic, where the best organisms, here programs, have the most offspring, and each of these offspring is a slight variant on the fittest organism. As in Arthur and Polak, this tweaking has a recombinant character, though. In only 25% of cases were new programs just a refinement of one existing program. More often, changes were copied from other programs, and the average submission stitched together code from 2.8 different programs. Over time, this means programs came to incorporate code snippets from tens or hundreds of different sources. But tweaks aren't the whole story. There are also programs that diverge substantially from what has come before. These evolutionary leaps were most of the time flops, but when they succeeded, they tended to succeed big. In other words, tweaking the current best code was more likely to lead to a small incremental gain, while making a big change, a leap, was more likely to lead to a big gain, or more often, a big fail. But this only lasts so long. After the first one to two days of the seven-day contest, it becomes rare that an innovation that is very dissimilar to the current leader becomes the new leader. More generally, Mu et al. 2018 show that as copying becomes the dominant strategy, the diversity of programs declines over time. And here we're talking about diversity as a measure of how different two programs typically are from each other. As with Arthur and Pollock, this seems to suggest path dependence. Once a general approach to programming a solution becomes dominant, 
iterative refinement of this approach means it gets increasingly hard for alternative approaches to get on that leaderboard and then benefit from iterative refinement of their own. So these papers demonstrate evolutionary dynamics in simulation and in certain artificial settings. But do these dynamics matter out there in the, you know, quote unquote, real world, where programs are not just meant to solve fake problems, but to instead facilitate a huge number of real-world computational tasks? While we can't observe these dynamics in nearly such rich detail, but Valverde and Sole from 2015 is an attempt to apply an evolutionary lens to the actual history of computer programming languages. Valverde and Sole want to derive an evolutionary tree for 347 different programming languages that were invented between 1952 and 2010. Such a tree would show how every programming language splits off from some unique ancestor. That's actually a bit of an uncomfortable metaphor for technological evolution, though, because the previous papers suggest each programming language borrows from lots of ancestors, or probably will borrow from lots of ancestors. And in fact, Valverde and Sole do find something like this. For every programming language, they look to see which other programming languages are cited as influences using that page's Wikipedia article as their data source. Indeed, most articles do cite multiple languages, and you can generate a complex network that's just very dense and interconnected, showing all the connections between these 347 different programming languages. But it remains instructive to try and identify the single most influential programming language from among all the ancestor languages that influenced a new programming language. And they can do this through this algorithmic approach, which I thought was really interesting and wrote a, a sort of description of, but it's also kind of technical and probably not of general interest, so I stuck it in the appendix of the newsletter. You're welcome to go read it there, but I probably won't read it here. Once Valverde and Sole have identified each programming language's most influential ancestor, an evolutionary tree can be built, but we should be careful to interpret this as more like a map of which languages are highly influential rather than a map of ancestry in sort of the biological sense. And they come up with these two trees that are completely separated from each other, one sort of initiating from the Fortran programming language, the other initiating from the Lisp programming language. So what do we learn from this exercise? I see sort of two themes that are interesting. First, as with Arthur and Pollack, innovation is lumpy. A few key programming languages lead to these sort of speciation events, possibly because they provided key conceptual components to unlock a lot of other useful features. Second, once again, we see a kind of path dependency. Languages are divided into two separate trees, one corresponding to the imperative procedural programming families, the other to the declarative programming families, and those include functional and logical programming subgroups. The kinds of languages that start out influences the kind of languages you end up with. Now, that said, one point of caution is, you know, these trees are completely separated that they come up with, but that's because they're only looking at the most influential common ancestor of each language. And if you look at all influences, there's a lot more crosstalk between these trees. So a program derived from, say, Lisp might borrow ideas from programs derived from Fortran, even though for the Fortran languages are not the most influential. So... Is the same process that built complex organisms also broadly responsible for complex technology? At least for computer programs, I think an unusually recombinant form of evolution is almost certainly part of the story. And I wouldn't be surprised if similar dynamics don't play out in many other technological domains. Now, other domains have traditionally been harder to study because you can't read the genotype as easily as you can for computer code. 
but with increasingly sophisticated natural language processing techniques. Maybe we'll see more efforts to study evolution in other, at least textual manifestations of technology, such as patents and product descriptions. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.